Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Good morning. I, uh, I guarantee you that I got up more excited today than you did. Uh, if you've been around, you understand why. You understand why. Um, so just a handful of things. First, if you're a visitor here with us today, we're so glad you're here. Welcome to the deep end of the pool. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Revelation, God willing, for 34, 35 weeks. Um, and there is stuff here for you. If you're not used to coming to church very often, um, man, God has you here for a purpose. And his purposes for you are good in the hearing of this message from the book of Revelation. I hope that you come prepared to hear what God has for you. For us as those that are here um, a lot, I just want to highlight a handful of things. On the way out, you're going to get a bookmark. We've pulled out all the stops, guys. We've pulled out all the stops. On one side, you're going to see a load of different things that we've prepared to help make Revelation more accessible over the next eight or so months. I just want to draw highlights to a few things. First, the sermon series videos. If you miss a sermon for this series, you may come back and be like, what's happening? So I'd encourage you to continue to track with us. Do you know that we have a podcast? It's called Pastoring Out Loud. You can find it on Spotify, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each Friday, we release just a short 10-minute episode where we talk about the previous week's sermon. It's a good way to just jump right back in with us. There are book resources and something that I'm really excited about. The third Thursday of every month, we're going to gather in various people's homes And we're just going to read through the book of Revelation and pray. This Thursday is the third Thursday. We're going to be at David and Karen's house. If you register on the website, you'll get their address. Don't just give it to everybody. Their house can't accommodate everybody in this room. Okay. But it can accommodate a few. So we hope that you grab one of these on your way out and follow along with us. In preaching class with Mark Markham almost uh, 20 years ago, I remember hearing that we were, as preachers, to kind of embody the text of Scripture that we were preaching. So the sermon, filled with hope, sound the note of hope. Is it filled with judgment? Sound a note of judgment and concern and warning. As we turn to this apocalypse of St. John, there is a major note of hope. It's a big deal that the lion of the tribe of Judah is conquered and he looks like a slain lamb. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But another note that we should feel as a people is a sense of, I think, discomfort. There's a sense in which this book is read sometimes as just only for somebody way out in the future or only for somebody way in the past and not necessarily deeply for us today. So, follower of Jesus, part of South City's church, are you uncomfortable as you approach this text? Consider what the original recipients of the letter would have taken when they 
got this. They received a letter. It was probably to be read in their assembly on Sunday morning. They're reading the first verses or they're having somebody read it to them. And it's, it's from the Apostle John. And Jesus has a letter for us. Consider what it would feel like if Jesus had a letter for South City's church. What would that feel like? Maybe we'd be excited. But as the letters are read to their respective churches, there was encouragement. There's also rebuke. So most mornings over the last 13 years as I've opened up my Bible to the book of Revelation, I ask myself the question, am I ready to be encouraged? And also confronted? Am I ready to be filled with hope? but also to realize that I'm a sinner in need of grace? Am I ready to be comforted and also discomforted? I hope as we begin this book together, that your guard is not up. Do you think about, what, what about all this interpretation? What about this out here? What about this over here? The book of Revelation I'm gonna seek to show today is for us today. It's not here to play footsie with preset beliefs going to step on toes. And we have to be prepared for that because it is dangerous to go through this book. God's word, the author of Hebrews tells us, is like a sharp two-edged sword cutting to the dividing of joint and marrow of soul and spirit. And I hope you feel that revelation is kind of like the tip of the sword. And whatever God does to wound, he also binds up to heal. This is the great promise of Revelation. Blessed are those, happy are those who read it, who hear it, and who keep it, who do it, who obey it. And there's grace and peace right in chapter one from our triune God to read, to hear, to do, and so be happy. Dave next week is gonna dig into this as we launch into the first nine verses. He's going to talk about what an apocalypse is. You're like, an apocalypse? Yeah, an apocalypse. What is that? I'll just, I'm not going to steal all the apocalyptic thunder, but just a little bit. Apocalypse, which in our modern entertainment world kind of just means like the end of the world, originally means revelation, something unveiled, something not previously known that becomes known and clarified. It reveals, yes, the future. But Revelation also reveals the present and the past to show us what's really happened, what's really happening, and what's really going to happen. So there would be a group of people, uh, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, they would say, this book is really just about what happened in the first century. Then there's another group, much larger, really popular in America, that would say, it's really only for the last generation of Christians that are going to live. I just want to assert, guys, like, this is for us today. For us today. And it's for every generation of Christians. Yes, the past. Yes, the future. And that's going to be a key question we'll ask throughout this series. What did it reveal to the original readers in the Roman province of Asia Minor. This is something that Dave just says to me regularly. I think this is a great catchphrase. 
Revelation cannot mean for us today what it could not have meant to them then. Their interpretation, how they would have understood it, is the lens through which we must wrestle. They would have seen Revelation a certain way, and we need to wrestle with that and come to grips with that. It's important for us to know some things. It's important for us to know what did Revelation reveal about their culture, about their churches, about their lives. Before we ask the question, what does it mean for our culture, our church, our lives? So for the original readers, this revelation of Jesus Christ exposed their culture. It showed that the Roman Empire was not a neutral place in regards to the claims of Christ. The revelation of their culture showed that spiritual forces were arrayed against Christ and his followers. This was cosmic levels of warfare. Far from simple compromise concerning idolatry or sexuality in regards to their culture, which was filled, filled with idolatry and sexuality, the reality was that their allegiance to Jesus, Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord, meant that the culture stood opposed to them. And if they were going to align themselves with culture, that meant that God was going to be opposed to them. For the original readers, this revelation of Jesus Christ also exposed their churches. It showed how they were compromised or complacent in regards to the external pressures around them. It showed how much sin was tolerated or embraced by the church communities and even in a couple of cases, how the church was divided over that. And it also showed where there was faithfulness in these churches. And they needed to press on and to encourage them in that. And for the original readers, the revelation of Jesus Christ also exposed their lives. It showed them where they had grown cold, where their passion for the world burned hotter than their passion for God. It showed them where their worship was conformed to society around them, where they cared more about the God's the sex and the money that they could get out of what was around them and they cared little for Christ. And it showed them a pathway out, a pathway to freedom. Now there's even more revealed. In this series, we're gonna talk about, yes, we'll talk about the beast and his mark, the 144,000 and their identity. What about that millennium, right? But that's not what Revelation is about chiefly. Revelation is mainly about not any of the things happening in culture or our church or our lives, not mainly about any of those particular symbols. The biggest thing Revelation reveals is our God in all of his glory, ceaselessly in heaven, and it's coming to earth, everyone. It's coming to earth. Christmas Eve, when I prayed, God, let 2024 be the year, I meant it. Do you hope so too? Revelation's meant to kindle hope in us. Come, Lord Jesus. The significant movement of Revelation is how heaven, separated from earth because of sin, is coming back. How God, once dwelling with mankind, is gonna come to make everything right. And in this message today, we're just gonna ask simply, what's the message of Revelation for us? What do we do in light of this revelation of Jesus Christ? We will see that Revelation shows us Christ's victory, 
from an empty tomb to a throne room, our victory today as we endure and wait for him and his victory finally when his throne comes to earth. Would you pray with me? So God, help. Um, I feel like I've been preparing 13 years for this sermon. Don't let what I prepared be the main thing. Let your spirit working through your word be the most significant thing taking place here. Oh, please, Lord, please help your people to hear. And anyone who doesn't have ears to hear, give them those ears, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First, we're gonna look at the first victory at the cross, the victory of the lamb at the cross. After the initial vision in chapter one, where Jesus encounters John the Apostle on the island of Patmos, kind of a Roman Alcatraz out on the Mediterranean. And then the revelation in chapters two and three of seven letters to seven real churches in Asia Minor. In chapter four, John is transported in a vision to see what's happening in heaven. And what he sees astounds him. Like Ezekiel in Ezekiel one, like Isaiah in Isaiah six, like Daniel in Daniel seven, John is brought into the very throne room of God where ceaseless worship is going on. All of heaven, its attention directed, not to earth, but to God. And then we arrive in chapter five and a new scene in heaven appears. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. This scroll we'll get to, I think Dave will be preaching that message at the end of March, represents all of God's plans for his people and for his world in the end. So if no one can open the scroll, that is weep worthy. It means that something's happening to thwart God's plans. I think this is the same scroll that's sealed up at the end of the prophet Daniel. That's for the end times. It's being opened for God's purposes to be fulfilled. So it is a really big deal what happens next. Chapter five, verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then John doesn't turn and see a lion. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What is Jesus appear as a slain lamb, a Passover lamb. Now, apocalyptic literature works in terms of symbolism. 
How can a lamb go and grab a scroll? You ever spent time around a lamb? They don't have opposable thumbs, can't do that. It's a symbol. It points towards, like uh, this is what John is truly seeing in his vision, but it points towards the reality that Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, is also a slain Passover lamb. It's a book, this book is filled with monstrous beasts that stand in for empires and women that stand in for cities. So the original readers would have been familiar with this Passover lamb idea. Jesus himself was declared by John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus described himself as this. Prophet Isaiah described him this way in Isaiah 53. So the original readers would have seen him in this way. He's a sacrificed lamb. It's a conquering lion. This is, just put a pin here. We're going to return to this several times. John hears something and then he sees something. Or sometimes, occasionally, it's he sees something and then he hears something. This is an interpretational clue. John is getting, like, uh, it's, it's a way for us to read apocalyptic literature to understand the symbols that we're seeing. This lamb is the conquering lion of Judah from Genesis 49. A sacrificial lamb is a victorious lamb? Is a victorious lion? How is it that he's victorious? He was killed and didn't stay dead. When something gets killed, you think, defeat, it's, it's dead. All your movies where the bad guys die at the end, they're, they're dead. Or the good guys die, you know, in modern movies, like good guys die and you're all weepy and sad. Here is one who death cannot touch. And death touched him initially so that he would kill death. What kind of victory is this? A victory that rocks heaven and earth because it signals the end of everything as we know it and the beginning of something new. Because he was slain, as the text explains, to save and set apart a people for himself, a kingdom of priests, the church, he is the worthy one to open the scroll and unleash all of God's plans for judgment and salvation in these end times. John is agreeing with the rest of the biblical authors. Jesus being nailed to a bloody cross, naked, buried in a tomb, was not the end. He rose again. And he didn't just rise. He ascended into heaven. He, the eternal son of God, taking on flesh to die, meant that he was enthroned in heaven. This is good news for both earth and heaven. He conquered by taking on sin and death and Satan through his own death. So that's one bookend of Revelation. A first victory at the cross and through the resurrection. But Revelation does these interesting things. It moves forward and backwards in time. And it gives us multiple perspectives on the same thing. Including more perspective on what it means that the lamb ascended. So we've been in about two feet of water on the shallow end of the pool. All right, we're going to work our way to the spot where we need to tread some water. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. This is one of the clearest instances where the book of Revelation 
moves back in time to something that took place in the past. This is, quite frankly, my favorite Christmas text. Actually. All right. Read with me. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains and agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. What happens in the birth of Christ? Foretold all the way back in Genesis 3.15. We were told that an offspring of the woman would come who would crush the head of the serpent. If you're reading carefully in Genesis, like we spent a bunch of time uh, over the last couple of years, like immediately in chapter four, verse one, we still get hints in Genesis that somebody is looking for this coming offspring. Here's a symbolic vision of the coming offspring and the serpent is waiting because he knows the coming offspring signals his doom. Now, the woman's identity, the period and what it means that there's 1,260 days, all these things are things that we'll return to at the end of May, okay? On May 26th, that's gonna be fun. This is clearly Christ being described, both from Genesis chapter three, from how he's described in Psalm two, the Messiah, and then this title, like he's got a rod to rule the nations, is here in Revelation chapter two, verse 27, and chapter 19, verse 15. This is clearly Jesus, nobody else. And then look what happens next. The now, translated in your ESV, without any other language like, and then I saw, or then I heard, signals that this is still the same vision. Chapter 12, one through six, is followed by seven through 12. And most people that looked at this in history and saw, like the one through six is Jesus' birth, said that what happens in verse seven is causal. Jesus' birth and ascension in one through six leads to what took place in chapter, in chapter 12, verse seven. Read with me. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And that great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What happens in the ascension of the son of God to heaven? Satan doesn't have a place anymore. This is John chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment has come. The ruler of this world is being cast out. John doesn't say cast out of what? Or chapter 14, there's John uh, 14, verse 30, or John 16, 11. The ruler of this world is being judged. 
or Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. At the ascension of the Son of God, Satan lost the ability to enter into the throne room of God like he did back in Job. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Job 1 and 2. Wait, Satan fell from heaven at the ascension of Jesus? I thought Satan fell like at the beginning, like when he first sinned. Well, that's informed somewhat by the scriptures and some pictures that we see in Ezekiel and Isaiah. It's also somewhat informed, that idea is somewhat informed by a book by Milton called Dante, or a book by Dante called uh, uh, Inferno, all right? And some other, and Milton's Paradise Lost. So there's just like, like some popular conceptions of Satan and who he is and where he's coming from that we're gonna aim to correct as we go through this. And guess what? We'll talk about that on May 26th too. Point, what's the point of all this? If the accuser of the saints is thrown down, he's been shamed by God. He's cast to earth. And what does he go about doing? Well, we'll see it in a second. He goes about hunting the saints. He wants to kill the followers of the Lamb. That's how Revelation portrays the beast that Satan calls out of the sea in 13, chapter 13, verse 1 like an empire from Daniel 7. It's why Peter can say in 1 Peter 5 that Satan's like a roaring lion prowling about where? On earth, seeking whom he may devour. So what is it that the saints do in response to this, this casting out of Satan? Look at verse 11 of chapter 12. And they, the saints, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Through the sacrifice of Jesus for us, canceling all our sin and giving us all of his own right standing with God, his righteousness, and through our ongoing clinging to Jesus by grace, only by grace, we beat Satan, sin, and death forever. Amen. Just one Amen. I know it was cold this morning, all right? And it's kind of like, got you like, like, okay, I will try again. All right, this is a homiletical, like rhetorical thing. I'm gonna try this again, all right, okay. Uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus for us, canceling all our sin and giving us all of Jesus's own right standing with the Father, his righteousness, and through our ongoing clinging to Jesus only by grace through faith, we beat Satan, sin, and death. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is victory in Jesus. We don't pick up swords, we pick up Bibles. In fact, better to say probably, we pick up a cross. Remember that from Jesus? He who must follow me must take up his cross. Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going to die, you too. You too. This is what shocked me 13 years ago when I started reading Revelation slowly uh, in my Greek New Testament. I'm reading chapter one. Blessed are those who keep what's in this book. Blessed are those who keep God's commandments. Chapters two and three, let those with ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Keep God's commandments, conquer. Chapter 12 here. And then I turn to chapter 13. Turn with me to chapter 13. Chapter 13 and chapter 14 have these like, like insertions. 
in the middle of all these stories about the beast, like doing horrible things and uh, the followers of the beast being cast into hell. Listen to this. If anyone has an ear to hear, this is chapter 13, verse nine. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be captive, taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If you're a first century Christian, having heard about people being thrown into prison or threatened with sword back in chapter two, as part of the letters, and you turn to chapter 13 and chapter 14, are you just like, that's just for somebody out there? Or do you see yourself in this? Or turn forward to chapter 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Who? Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. If I'm a first century Christian who's read in chapters one through three, and then again in chapter 12, and a little bit in chapter 11, and partially in chapter seven, and we're gonna go all those places, like all these things, do I just get to here and I'm like, this isn't, this isn't for me, this is for just some future generation of Christians, which is not denying that it isn't. Or do I say, this is a call for my faith, my endurance, right here in the middle of the Roman Empire with all these pressures around me, maybe pressures even inside my own church. I think so. This is the exact same language in the letters to the churches in chapters two and three. They conquer Satan, they receive a reward. It's the tree of life. It's a new name. It's the seal of God on their foreheads. That says something about how we interpret chapter seven. The same thing that Jesus did faithfully testing, testifying to God's goodness and salvation and judgment, and it led to his death, that's what the churches are called to do. Now, that meant all kinds of things for the seven churches. In Ephesus, it meant their love had grown cold and they needed to rekindle it. In Smyrna, they were intensely suffering and they, they needed to keep pressing on through imprisonment and even death. In Pergamum, there was compromise and the church was divided and the, the side that was following Jesus was like, well, just kind of keep quiet about it. In Thyatira, um, they were content to let sin just run wild in the church. And they needed to clean house. In Sardis, they were spiritually close to death. They were like a whitewashed tomb and they needed to wake up. In Philadelphia, like the world around them had a very low opinion of them, but heaven had a really high opinion of them and they needed to listen to what heaven was saying rather than the world. And in Laodicea, they were, thought they were spiritually rich with loads of activity going on, but they were actually spiritually dead. They needed to be seen what their true state was and zealous to find true riches in Jesus. Each one of these churches that we'll go through in February and beyond uh, has a word for us about how to conquer. But for now, suffice to say, conquering with Jesus looks like assessing our lives, yes, our church too, and seeing where we need to press on in faithfulness or where we've compromised in our faith. And by grace, asking God to help us change so that we might conquer. Now, just a, a word here really quick. This, like when we see all this language of conquering and fighting, this is a spiritual kind of warfare fighting. So I think at times, uh, we talked about the history of this. You can come, I, I wrote large papers about this uh, once upon a time in grad school. Like people took Revelation to be like, oh, fight, like grab a sword. This is not crusade language, all right? This is the language 
of spiritual warfare against spiritual enemies. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? We wage war by clinging to faith and convincing others to join us before it's too late. And that's how we defeat Satan and sin and death. And if you're here this morning and you're not walking in faith to Jesus, faith, faith in Jesus, there is coming a day where it will be too late. Whether death waits for you today or sometime soon or when Jesus returns. That doesn't have to be the case. You can cling to Jesus now in faith. All right, one final scene. The last victory, it is coming. This fight of faith doesn't last forever. Faith gives way to sight. Endurance gives way to final and true rest. And fighting gives way to victory. Final victory. This is chapter 17, verse 14. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The they is this unholy trinity, the dragon and the two beasts along with all of those that follow them, um, the nations and the kings who worship them. Unpacking all that that meant and all that it means will be a task for the end of May, you guessed it, into June. And this victory is just a microcosm of what gets described in chapter 19 and chapter 20 a ton. Uh, you can go and read that. But for now, we should realize that the earliest Christians would have seen themselves enduring the persecution of a beast, namely the Roman Empire, that had increasingly turned away from, well, just kind of operating normally towards during the reign of the Caesars, like beginning to say Caesar is God. And then not only saying that, but demanding that everybody within their borders also say that under the penalty of imprisonment or death. So if you're a Christian seeing that, you are called to resist. And do we think that was only for them then? History is shot through with that kind of example. We can turn to um, the invasion of Islam across the Straits of Gibraltar in the 600s and 700s. We can turn to the persecutions of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. We can turn to, oh, this will, like, I want to almost preach a biographical sermon about evangelicals, more than just Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that endured faithfully under the persecutions of the Nazis. Um, there's some wild stories. Revelation had a word for each of them, and I believe for us today. So regardless of what kind of nation we find ourselves in or what kind of culture aligned more towards the lamb or away from the lamb, Revelation has a word for us. So how is it that a group of earthly nations, even spiritual forces, can wage war against the lamb? They can't ascend to heaven to touch him. He's got to come down to them. And when he comes down, it's going to be a problem for them. What Revelation reveals is the way that Satan seeks to get at the lamb is to poke at the apple of his eye, his people. 
Satan wants to defeat the lamb by attacking the church. By attacking the church. Satan is insane. He is. He's insane. We'll talk more about where that insanity comes from as we get to some of these later passages. But Jesus won't be beaten. I mean, this is the kind of insanity, right? If you defeat your enemy and then your enemy gets up from the dead and says, I'm coming for you. And you're like, all right, come at me again. That's insane. You run the other direction. You say, oh, I mean, like, like Jesus came coming and death jumped in its own grave to get out of the way. Satan will not win because Jesus can't be defeated. He can't be killed. So Satan seeks to kill the body of Christ here on earth. But we know who saves the soul and resurrects the body. And notice too the quality of these saints. Yeah, they're faithful, but they're called and they're chosen. The church is called and chosen by God to bear witness. Think about like the end of Jude and the benediction there. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne with great joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, both now and forever. Amen. That's the kind of God we serve. If you, you come to Revelation, you're like, I need to assess my life. I need to do that. I need to. I need to. Without the realization that you're called and chosen so that you might be faithful in God's grace, you're going to miss the point of this book. This book will feel like a threat every time you come back instead of an invitation, something filled with hope for you to say, God has grace for me here. I will conquer by faith. Now, in conclusion, we as a church are going to be challenged by this book to endure, to give up compromise, to speak out as faithful witnesses. What is some of what that might look like? This year, when the text arrives, turn on the TV. And there's an American city on fire or a Ukrainian or Russian city or a Cameroonian city or a Mexican city. Will you be prepared to remind yourself the slain and risen Lord Jesus is on the throne. Death is defeated. Satan is cast down. My final victory is coming. I will conquer by grace through faith and I will bear witness to he who has saved me from death and sin and Satan. When the phone call comes from the doctor and there's a two-inch mass sitting in your chest and the scans are inconclusive and yes, you need a biopsy. Will you be prepared to remind yourself the slain and risen Lord Jesus is on the throne. Death is defeated. Satan is cast down. My final, final victory is coming. I will conquer by grace through faith and I will bear witness to he who has saved me from sin and death and Satan. When people that you love cut you out of their lives because you follow Jesus and they love their sin and they don't want to listen to it anymore. Will you be prepared to remind yourself the slain and risen Lord Jesus is on the throne. 
Death is defeated. Satan is cast down. My final victory is coming. I will conquer by grace through faith and I will bear witness to he who has saved me from sin and death and Satan. When you lose your job in 2024, because you will not be proud of what God calls an abomination at your workplace. And that goes onto your resume and you've got to explain that and you can't get a job now. Will you be prepared to say, slain and risen, Lord Jesus is on the throne. Satan is cast down. My final victory is coming. Death is defeated. I will conquer by grace through faith. I will bear witness to he who has saved me from death and sin and Satan. When people at your school distance themselves from you, your homeschool co-op, your sports team, because you follow Jesus and you won't participate in what they say is good, will you be prepared to remind yourself the slain and risen Lord Jesus is on the throne. Death is defeated. Satan is cast down. My final victory is coming. I will conquer by grace through faith. I will bear witness to he who has saved me from sin and death and Satan. And for some of you here, if you don't have Jesus to cling to, some of those things may be coming in 2024. You don't have to face them by yourself. You don't. Jesus holds himself out to you, even in this sermon. The great promise of Revelation, the great press of Revelation is for all those who persist in faith and faithfulness to the Lamb, the new heavens and new earth waits. All those who conquer with the slain and conquering lamb will reach that city, that country, that world, yes, that universe. And there's a coming feast. And those who are called and chosen and faithful are invited to. And that's what communion stands as a picture of. Listen to these words from Revelation chapter 19. A microcosm, or communion as a microcosm of this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Here's another blessed statement in Revelation. Happy, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who do this book at the beginning of the book. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, a feast. Revelation speaks this message to us. Jesus holds himself out. And that's what communion is here for too. A reminder. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with his son freely give us all things? What things? All things. Communion stands as a pledge. Our Savior has pledged himself to us. We love him because he first loved us. Now as you approach the communion table with this reminder of victory resounding in your ears, just a reminder that this communion table is for saints that are walking towards their risen Savior. Saints that desire him, though other things may compete with that desire, that the allegiance that arises in your heart 
is not to the world around us, but to the, tri- the lion of the tribe of Judah, our slain and risen Savior. If today you're here with us visiting or otherwise, and you're not certain that you are clinging to Jesus by faith, we just ask that you don't come up and take, but turn and ask somebody. Turn and ask somebody what it means to have faith in Jesus. If other allegiances are boiling to the top of your heart right now, like, I do like my sin, and I don't know where that stands in relationship to Jesus, maybe hesitate to take this meal. Or if there's bitterness in your heart, especially towards other believers, this is a meal of unity. Consider if perhaps the Lord would have you even, whether commit in your heart to go talk to that brother or sister, or perhaps even like after the service, or perhaps even do it during this. But for everyone who is by grace, through faith, repenting, looking to Jesus, not perfectly. Oh, what a meal of victory. Oh, what a meal of a preview of what's coming in that new heavens and new earth. The ushers have elements available for you if you raise your hand, like if you'd rather stay seated where you're at, um, you know, either to meditate or for other reasons, you can raise your hand, they'll get that to you. I will read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then you can come when you're ready. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. May God give us grace to assess our hearts and come when you're ready.